Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Robert Jones. Welcome to the first episode of the Catch Curve podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And with a special guest today, uh, Shannon Tompkins, the outdoor writer for the Houston Chronicle. Good morning. Just as a reminder, the Catch Curve is a podcast that's going to cover the intersection of fisheries and coastal communities, coastal economies, um, and general use of outdoor resources and how that impacts coastal communities. And we're have an expert with us today to dig into that issue on our inaugural podcast. Um, Shannon, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the Houston Chronicle. Well, I, uh, uh, I cover outdoor recreation and natural resource issues for the Chronicle I have for the past uh, 29 years and uh, have been a journalist since, uh, well, since the late 70s and, and uh, almost all of it focused on coastal Coastal Texas, coastal Louisiana, coastal issues, a lot of it. So with over 40 years of experience in outdoor journalism, how did, how did you arrive at this career in the first place? Uh, dumb luck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, uh, uh, you know, I went to college uh, thinking I wanted to be into uh, wildlife and fishery science and ended up in journalism and then ended up with a, a graduate degree in public policy also so it would just seemed like almost a natural fit to end up where I ended up. Well I'm a regular reader of your column and a big fan um, and I'd like to hear a little bit about the audience that you're writing to uh, in your regular columns and I'm sure you know a little bit about the demographics from the paper, but also because you probably hear back from a lot of those people and and what what you're trying to achieve in, in writing those columns. Well, actually, you know, by, my focus is on outdoor recreation, uh, but I do a whole lot of natural resource stuff too. So my main audience, the core audience, is, is basically anglers, boaters, campers, hunters, fishermen, but I really try to focus as, as widely as I can to interest as, as wide an audience as you can. You know, newspaper is uh, supposed to be for general interest. And uh, the more, the wider you can cast the net, the better. The more people who find some value in what you do is, 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 uh, is a positive thing. So. I'm interested, before we, we start talking about the, the subject of the natural resource itself and how you've seen it change, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you've seen journalism and specifically outdoor journalism change over the course of your career. <laughs> I guess it was a great story. When I first got into this business, I was around a campfire with a bunch of guys and a person who was a lobbyist with for natural resources in the Texas legislature was one of the guys there. And uh, I had just started really covering outdoors for newspapers and uh, he said you'll you'll never make it in this business you went to journalism school <laughs> which kind of was a backhanded slap at how my job used to be it was basically just a in a lot of cases just a good old boy I went fishing today and here's what we caught deal instead of covering issues or 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 getting into a little bit deeper uh, it, it's changed a lot, and it's it uh, probably reached its zenith probably over the past twenty years. And now newspapers are like a lot of you know print industries. It's kind of on the decline. We've reached 
the interesting thing is we reach more people now than we ever did through our uh you know through our online sites uh it's just uh it's just i guess they can't make any money <laughs> off of online so uh uh you know staffs are smaller we have less opportunity to cover things as in depth as we might have in the past but uh but yeah it's changed it changed over the past 20 years 25 30 years from covering just uh just telling stories to covering issues uh because i think everybody saw that they're you know if you're if you're a coastal fisherman what happens to that coast determines if if there are any fish for you to catch and and what fish are there for you to catch so so i learned recently um sad fact that you are the last full-time outdoor reporter in texas um it kind of speaks to the change you just just referenced um how does that feel and 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 does that put more responsibility on you and your storytelling i don't know if it puts more responsibility it makes it it's kind of sobering uh i've always thought of this job as a responsibility it's Mm -hmm. it's it's a job and and uh you're serving your readers you're serving your audience uh, so i've always looked at it as a responsibility I don't, though i don't feel any more responsible now than i did my whole career i mean i've i've always tried to do as the best job i could and you know there are a lot of external factors that that play into that but uh uh and yeah it's been really it's been really sobering to watch this my profession shrink so dramatically over the past it's really been the past 10 years uh so there're not that many voices out there anymore uh there are a lot of voices but there are not as as many voices in positions kind of like I've had so one of the things that occurs to me is you know we live in a day and age where um the topic du jour can be pretty shallow and uh you know about uh, the most recent social activity of a celebrity or you know things that may not directly impact people's lives and the area that you're covering uh is not a short burst it's very much a long-term view about how our our natural environment is changing um, and how that impacts people's ability to recreate or harvest uh, natural resource for a living. Um, how have you approached that in your storytelling and in, in in your narrative for your audience to give them the long term view of what you've seen over your career, but still make it relevant to to something that they would have seen in their daily life? Well, that's a good question, and that's the, <laughs> that's that's the trick of the job <laughs> is to make make take issues that are current and and try to weave a thread showing where they came from and what's happening now and where they're going uh it's you know it's it's a constant challenge to to come up with uh with topics that you think will be of interest to to readers and uh 
that affect them directly. And the ones that affect them directly are usually the most, are obviously the ones that they care the most about. Uh, so you try to pick, you try to try to cover as much as you can uh, in things that impact people directly. So uh, I think everybody can imagine this, but the, you know, you cover the Houston, or you're with the Houston Chronicle covering the Houston metro area, which is, you know, the third largest city and metro area in the country. Uh, the the size of your audience is enormous. Um, tell me a little bit about when you're thinking about that readership and that number of people in the limited real estate you have to tell a story. Um, tell me about some of the stories that you haven't gotten to write that you wished you had. How many hours do you have? Hmm. Uh, there are, you know, there are, I, uh, you know, there just one, one issue, uh, and we talked a little earlier, just visiting about, about oysters. There are so many facets of that issue that I wish I had the time and the resources to to develop a little bit better. Uh, I've been lucky. The Chronicle's been really, really a great place to work because they've given me a lot of freedom to to do what I thought needed to be done. And and I one of the best pieces I think I ever did was a huge series on oysters after Galveston Bay suffered a just tremendous oyster loss after Hurricane Ike and uh, I was really happy with that but there were parts of that I wish I had more time to spend uh, you know oysters are you know not coastal related but a lot of terrestrial uh, wildlife a lot of water issues uh, I wish I had time to get into uh, time and the resources to get into, but it's a uh, it's a labor-intensive job. I mean, and, and most newspapers and reporters will tell you that they've never worked a forty-hour week in their life. They're mostly seventy to eighty-hour weeks, and you just you just do as much as you can and go on to the next thing, I guess. So, uh, you know, I work professionally in fisheries as well, and I, and I really relate to your point there in that the mere complexity of a lot of these issues makes it so difficult to uh, to talk to somebody who doesn't deal with it every day and, and make it relate to their life because it is so important. Um, oysters obviously being a great example. Um, I, I'd be interested to hear about how you've approached some telling an ed- your audience, educating your audience on some of these complex issues where there are natural causes for change, like the hurricane that you referenced. Uh, There are very much man-made causes. Um, uh, There is a growing population. There's water quality issues. There's this confluence of things that are impacting our environment. And everybody comes to it with a different lens of what they're willing to believe is a cause of a problem, uh, of a shift in a natural resource. And how you kind of tackle that and and speak to people in a general way that gets 
past what the biases they might bring as they read your column? I depend very, very heavily on science. And I'm, I'm really lucky that I have some really good relationships with some really great science-based folks who can give me information that's just just that it's unbiased here's what the here's what the science says if you just focus on that and just uh and and don't get into opinion or agendas or anything like that just as here's what the science says or here's what's happening and and here's you know, either anecdotal, but empirical proof is by far the best. Everybody's got anecdotes, but if you can talk to somebody and say, "Look, we've watched we've watched southern flounder populations abundance drop by seventy percent over the past thirty years," and and here's what's causing it. Here's why we believe that. You know, you'll. I think people will. No matter what their agenda or bias or what preconceived notions they come to a story with, you know they'll they'll be able to gain some value from that, and so that's that's basically the way I approach those. I'm really glad you brought up the flounder example because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today was a piece that you wrote about um, subtle shifts in temperature on the Texas coastline and and rising waters. Um, and you did a great job of, uh, of digging into the facts um, and the science behind that. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that case in particular, where we are seeing a shifting environment and how that's impacting two species that you talked about in the article of of uh, mangrove snapper and, and and flounder. Well, those are just those are just two of the species that that's changed on the Texas coast over the past, you know, 30 years or so. Uh, You've got, uh, I guess you have winners and losers when climate changes. Uh, And the Texas coast has obviously seen, I mean, empirical evidence of of change over a long period of time, or at least it accelerated over the past 30 years. And uh, flounder are an interesting fish, and this, you know, I'm not a fisheries biologist, but I've talked to a lot of them, and here's what they say. Southern flounder in Texas are, uh, uh, we're at the, we're at the southern end of their range. They're really, really kind of a cold water fish, Uh, and a lot of their the life cycle depends on is it just temperature dependent, uh, particularly flounder uh, spawning. Flounder, southern flounder live in the bays. They move off. Adults move offshore during the fall. And that's why we have a flounder run. That's why they're important to a lot of fishermen. That fall flounder run is something everybody focuses on. But those fish are going into the Gulf to spawn. They they spawn in the open Gulf. A key to Spawning success is water temperature, and they're a cool water-dependent fish. The cooler the water within a range, the the more successful spawn you're going to have. You have hotter 
warmer temperatures, the less successful you're going to have. Uh, and it also, they're one of the fish that the uh, temperature de- determines sex of the larva, sex of that, that fish. So what's happened over the past 30 years is if Texas winters have gotten warmer, the, our lows are higher. So we've had really poor spawning success driven by, driven by water temperature. And and we've seen southern flounder populations drop by more than 70% from the early 70s to to now, uh, 75% fewer flounder in our bays. Uh, And that's just a direct result of the change in temperature. and you can argue, <laughs> you can argue what caused that temperature change, but you can't argue that the temperature has changed, and the effects have been, you know, very obvious with flounder. And it's been the same with, uh, you know, that's a loser. The uh, mangrove snapper that you mentioned have kind of been a winner. Uh, as temperatures warm, they're a tropical fish. They can't take, a, you know, water temperatures that under 50 or so for a long period of time they've moved up the coast we've got gray snapper uh snook uh you know we've had a lot of different different animals move in and out as dependent on the water temperature and and, i mean it's not just the gulf coast you see that on the atlantic coast you see it all over the world we are very happy uh, to have three sponsors uh going into 2019 for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. Uh, DuneDoctors.com out of Pensacola, Florida, great company, Frederick Barrasette for Dune Restoration, Native Shoreline Management Practices for all you property owners and condo administrators and uh, uh, folks out there who are trying to put dunes back in place to protect your properties. Dune Doctors, Pensacola, Florida, LJA Engineering, uh, their coastal practice here in Austin, Texas, offices up and down the Gulf Coast of the United States. Very solid, very smart engineering firm for those of you in local governments, ports and waterways management, LJA Engineering, LJA.com. And our good friends out in Wilmington, North Carolina, TI Coastal Services, serving the area around Wilmington, Treasure, uh, uh, Topsail Island, and other parts of the Atlantic Seaboard. Another very fine coastal engineering firm, waterway firm, great group, ticoastal.com. With the mangrove snapper, which is an interesting one, is not only to my understanding, the warmer water has expanded their range, and so we're seeing higher populations of them than we used to. Also shifts in salinity levels in the bays have begun to change saltwater marshes and we're beginning to create new habitat that is displacing one species and welcoming another uh, to your winners and loser comment and that's that's another point and i you know i mentioned this in the piece that you're talking about is kind of the change in the expansion of mangrove black mangrove into texas which is more is changing the estuaries is changing that estuarine environment, that littoral environment on the estuaries, and it's benefiting some, and it's 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 
hurting others. Uh, but yeah, it, and and that's all driven both by water level rise and uh, and 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 temperature rise. Uh, you've we've seen black mangrove, which used to be pretty much relegated to the end of the state, move all the way into Louisiana uh, and displace oyster grass, which is you know the the dominant coastal grass along the texas coast which is and it's changing the it's it's changing the environment for both the fish well for everything there mm. and uh you know, i was talking to somebody the other day about how water change water temperature change is changing benthic life too which is very poorly understood by a lot of people including science we don't know how that's changing marine worms and, and other benthic life which is crucial so we've got a huge gap in our knowledge base there remind our listeners what you mean by benthic life benthics uh, uh the critters that live in the mud basically that's the easiest way of putting it yeah. marine worms mostly uh, uh it's it's one or two steps up the food chain let's put it that way i wanted to push you to clarify that because it speaks to your broader theme is that all of these ecosystems are connected and right. one change can lead to a cascading effect down the rest of the the chain um and so one of the things i wanted to to get your perspective on obviously with 40 years of experience in covering these issues you have a lot of firsthand observations about these changes um for me summer flounder really hits a chord because i grew up in the the portland rockport area on the texas coast and um i spent uh all of those cold months gigging flounder uh walking the beach with a coleman lantern uh dragging an inner tube behind me with a ice chest and gigging flounder and having a great time as a kid and um i could barely do that now if i tried <laughs> they're just not there and yeah. uh and it and it really it it's disturbing that we can see those sorts of drastic changes in our mere lifetime. Uh, it really speaks to how things are changing. Um, so my, my question for you is let, moving beyond the changing environment and the actual species, what, what's been your observation about how that's impacted the humans that interact with them, whether for recreation, for commercial harvest, how has that moved up into the into the human realm? You know, that's a great question. And it's hard to it'd be hard to point to one thing, one thing I've seen change or or several things I've seen. It's it's the old frog in a it's the old frog in a pot of boiling water you you don't notice it until you're cooked so it's hard to it's hard to definitively say but again I can say that it's 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 been very interesting to watch changes in the number of people on our bays and how people are how people approach their recreation, 
uh, you know, the conflicts that have arisen over sharing resources. Uh, it's uh, and and the the changes in relative abundance of a bunch of fish. It's just uh, uh, I don't know that I can. So change is the constant. Yeah, change is the constant. Uh, you know, I've uh, been lucky to sit in the same spot for 40 years uh, on a bay shore, and I grew up in the Galveston Bay area. Uh, but the couple places I've stood many, many, many times over 45, going on 50, maybe even more than 50 years, and to see the landscape change, the edge of the bay changes, the, the you know, oyster reefs disappear, uh, erosion change, uh, salinity levels change. As as uh, a perfect example of this is when, when I was a kid, there used to be, we used to have spring floods on the Trinity River, at the mouth of the Trinity River. And we would go out and, and uh, in the spring you could, uh, you would have huge flushes of crawfish. We would go crawfishing, we would pull my brothers and I would sane crawfish at the mouth of the river. Uh, Lake Livingston went in, changed the hydrology of the river. Those those spring crawfish runs ended. They just faded away. But then you saw changes in the bay as salinity levels changed too. You started seeing fish in places you didn't see them before. Uh, it, it just... It's just interesting to watch the ripple effects of one change, say one thing like putting in a river, putting in a dam, and to see how that changes things. It may not be immediate, but it'll change over the years, and and you'll you'll have some perspective. Twenty years later, you'll go, well, wow, <laughs> this is very different than it was, you know, when I was younger. I. I would imagine that one of the things that have changed over the course of your lifetime and, and your professional career is we've also made some major changes on the regulatory front. We've had some yes. landmark environmental laws go on the books. And I'm curious what your perspective would be about things that you saw before and after. Are we doing better? Or are we doing worse? About the same? Managing fish-wise? You know, I think we're. I think fisheries management has come a light years uh, ahead of what it was thirty, forty years ago. Uh, but you know, and there's still work to to be done there. But uh, I think you've got so many conflicting interests now. I think that's. Uh, I think that's playing a part, but I think well, your fisheries management and regulations have have really come a long ways. And I think I think one of the big things about regulations is that when I started in this business, there were no limits for so many species, and I think that devalued those animals. If, if it was like that, where so many that you can just take as many as you want it sends a message a cultural message that 
these things aren't, uh, you know, a finite resource. And I think conservative, uh, you know, clear-headed management based on science uh, has been the probably the biggest leap forward I've seen. So a large part of your audience that reads your column do so because they are hunters, they're fishermen. Mm-hmm. I wonder, I mean, you've gotten to know that audience over your career. I wonder if you could speak to sort of their conservation ethos and how they view this natural resource. It's really, really changed over the past 30 or 40 years. You still, uh, you have a lot deeper conservation ethic in in, a, in the majority of people I and mean, you're always going to have some people who don't don't get the word <laughs> but I think people are realizes these are finite resources and they're under stress from a lot of different factors and I think people want to do the right thing that's the that's probably the biggest change uh, it's uh I think people really want to to see their fisheries survive and not just survive but thrive and and I think a lot of people want to do what they can to you know to help in that uh, yeah it's uh, uh, I think it's been a real positive real positive change in angler particular ethics on the coast in especially. And I think that started in fresh water. I mean, obviously it did. It started in fresh water, but uh, but you're seeing that more and more. You didn't catch catch and release on the Texas coast, and uh, uh, people don't gauge their trips by how many ice chests worth of fish they bring in now. They gauge they gauge their their trips more on you know did I have a the whole experience. Uh, you know did I you know, did I, did I did I see some whooping cranes today? You know, that's that adds into the to the uh, the value of a trip instead of just you know how many fish did I catch? So. One of the things that we've covered is sort of the the impacts of these sorts of decisions, which are complex, um, and it seems that if you're going to limit harvest on a species in order to protect it and allow it to be sustainable um that's going to impact that's going to cause something down the the cause and effect line um can you give us an example uh, uh, over your career where you've observed where we've had to make tough decisions about managing a species or part of the resource where the repercussions just didn't end up being palatable for people give you an example I think it, it, it wasn't palatable for some people it was probably ended up being palatable for most people was the change uh, taking a uh, speckled trout and redfish off the commercial list in Texas in the late 70s early 80s uh, you know ending commercial fishing for spotted sea trout and redfish in Texas took the livelihoods of a 
you know, considerable number of people. Uh, I think that was one of those, one of those cost-benefit equations that the political and uh, social and cultural forces said it's going to happen, but it certainly ended up, you know, certainly ended up impacting the commercial fisheries. That's a great example, and and it kind of speaks to um, one of the tough, complex decisions that have to be made in managing a resource, and necessarily because you say, okay, commercial fishermen, you can't catch this fish. They're not just going to starve, and they're not going to not feed their families, so they're going to figure out what they can catch. And so then there is a, you know, a boomerang effect where they begin to target some other species and, and you have too much of a take of that species and on down the line. And it, it it speaks to one of the things that's near and dear to my heart is that as we're going to manage our coastal communities and we're going to manage these fisheries, we have to do it in a way that works economically for everybody. Um, otherwise you disincentivize them to be good stewards. And I, I'm sure you've probably seen examples of that. Oh, sure. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, you just look at, uh, you look at kind of the cascade effect of red snapper regulations in the Gulf. You know, when people couldn't focus on red snapper, they started focusing on great trigger fish, which, and then... <laughs> which no one ever did before that. And and the next thing you know, you got a problem with great trigger fish. Now we have trigger fish overfished. Right. Undergoing overfishing. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, you just, it's a constant balancing act, I guess. It's the same with oysters. Do you have, you know, oysters are vital, crucial for bay health and and for fisheries health. But you also got a, a, very viable business with oysters Mm. uh you know so how do you balance that and i think that's the that's the the issue that policymakers and biologists and individuals and and we've all got to you know got to make those decisions and uh, uh and try to have the best information we have to make those decisions. That's that's a key, I think. So you've traveled up and down the, the coast extensively. You've seen everything there is to see. I, I'd be interested in hearing some some good news. What wh- Where are some examples of where we're doing things right? Um, and everybody, including the different layers of the economy of a coastal community, is benefiting from where we're doing it right Hmm. boy you know come on you got you got to give us some good news (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know i'm just i'm trying to think of some the what would be the best example what would what would you think would be a good example something uh uh I don't know. Uh, well, I think in your backyard in Galveston, um, I mean, there's some environmental challenges, obviously, but uh, I think the community of Galveston has made is an incredible example of a 
come back after a tough storm. Uh, they're getting tourism right. Um, they got hotel rooms full. Uh, there's lots of recreation, lots of opportunities, a, th- a thriving commercial fishery. Uh, and you're in the backyard of some of the best restaurants in the country. Um, the, the community is doing something right. I can't put my finger exactly on it, but, uh, but I bet you have some ideas. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I think I think people are finally seeing Galveston Bay as 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 a huge, not just a natural resource, but economic resource, and to keep it healthy is going to keep the the economy healthy and it's such a part of the social fabric and cultural fabric of that area and i think people really want to they don't want to lose that and uh yeah i think uh i think people in galveston bay is a good example it's really interesting to see what's happening down in rockport and fulton area that that area trying to recover from hurricane ike i think people are really have really learned how valuable that those natural resources are to them not just economically but geez, culturally and socially uh, how you know a, a healthy uh, a, a healthy base system benefits everybody and uh, you know they don't want anybody they don't want anybody taking that away from them mm-hmm. so so I'm curious about what you haven't written about yet. That's on, that's on that's on the horizon. I know you got a list somewhere of stories that are in the hopper. Um, thinking about the, the the column we referenced a second ago about the shifting environment um, with mangrove snapper and flounder. What's the what's the next story that readers are going to hear about that is going to surprise them? I think you're just going to see continuation of of kind of how change is affecting like not just the landscape but the things that live on that landscape or in that water i think we're going to see i mean we're looking at we're looking at a texas that's doubled in population in the last what 30 years it's there four times as many people here as when i was born uh, there were eight million people in Texas when I was born, and I'm old, but I'm not that old. There are almost that many people in the Houston area, Houston metropolitan area. So I think you're going to see the big changes are going to be, you know, how do we balance the incredible growth that's we're seeing on the Texas coast with quality of life not just for us but for well for humans but for the natural world too i think that's going to be the big that's going to be the big issue uh things like the ike dike what do you you know what are the effects of that are we going to see that uh you know the how's that going to affect us economically how's it going to affect the environment how's it going to affect galveston bay uh i think those are the big so real quick for our listeners that are across the country, tell them a little bit about the Ike Dyke and, and why that's uh, such a big deal. It's, um, you know, Galveston Bay, after uh, Hurricanes Ike and Harvey, 
uh, mostly Ike in 2008, uh, where we saw this incredible uh, storm surge that could have been much, much worse. Uh, but uh, we recognized just how vulnerable the Texas coast had become. The coast is not any more vulnerable. It's people on the coast who are much more vulnerable. Uh, the coast is very resilient. It's the human infrastructure that's not very resilient. And so there's a, uh, uh, there's been an effort to try to develop a way to strengthen, it's called the coastal spine, to try to build a series of levees and gates uh, to prevent uh, storm surge from damaging the incredible amount of industrial and residential and the development along the Texas coast. And it's, we're talking, you know, uh, Panama Canal type of of infrastructure work. I mean, it's just just biblical in scope, uh, and it would affect the hydrology the, the uh, of the Texas Bays of uh, Galveston Bay, and uh, uh, you know, this is one of these things. Are we uh, or, or how much are we going to spend to protect? this infrastructure on the coast and what's the cost both financially, ecologically, economically, socially, every way. It's just a huge, a huge project aimed at trying to protect infrastructure on the Galveston Bay. We were having a little conversation before we started recording about the, the unintended consequences of all the levees along the Mississippi River um, and how that changed the, the delta and has a lot to do with the land loss that we're seeing in Louisiana today. Uh, just a good reminder that these sorts of huge projects, uh, you know, have unintended consequences sometimes that span for generations. Um, uh, so I'm in that in that vein. I'm wondering if you could give an example of other major infrastructure projects that you've seen built along the Texas coast during the course of your career uh, that. Uh, maybe a, year, a few years later, people said, "Wow, we didn't see that coming." <laughs> you know, if you just drive, like I grew up in the Baytown area, and if you just drive around uh, that area, or or and I worked in Beaumont, Port Arthur area, it doesn't seem real smart to build huge refineries a couple of feet above. <laughs> sea level on the edge of a bay uh you know yeah i think you know they never foresaw the consequences of that but you know we there are there are so many unintended consequences of some of the things we do the changes in uh, uh fresh water inflows into this into the bays uh from you know damming our rivers and changing the hydrology there i don't think anybody saw those those changes uh could foresee those changes uh but you know there's uh, i mean there have been some positive changes i was just thinking of one the other day uh the we've talked about flounder populations dropping but 
the green sea turtle population in the state of Texas has gone through the roof over the past 10 years. Uh, and that's almost a direct result of regulatory changes in, in the shrimping industry. Uh, you know, less loss of, of, uh, of sea turtles through... Uh, excluder devices. Excluder devices. Uh, we're seeing sea turtles now where we haven't seen them in 50, 60 years. So, you know, there are some... There's some positive things out there, and there's some not-so-positive. Sure. Well, we talked a lot about protecting these resources. Let's talk a little bit about enjoying them. Sure. Um, uh, you've covered a lot of fishing, and I'm sure you've caught a lot of fish in your life. Uh, what What's some of the most exciting fishing that you're seeing these days along the Texas coast? You know, it's... it's uh, one of the things that's really been interesting in the last few years is, is kind of this resurgence of the tarpon fishery on the Texas coast. Uh, I don't know if it's resurgent or if it's just been rediscovered. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have some, some really, really good tarpon fishing for large fish in, in parts, of our, uh, parts of our coast, upper and the middle coast particularly, during the, during the summer summer months that's been a a real that's been a real bright spot you know we have a tremendous redfish fishery in 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 this state and uh it's gotten to the point that i i would have never thought i would have heard this from readers or from from folks i talk with who say we have too many redfish and i'm saying how can that be i i don't how can you have too many and uh uh well i agree with that i can never seem to catch my tagged redfish <laughs> and win my f-150 in my boat well it it, it it is fascinating i mean i i can't say that from when i was you know over the past 40 years redfish population in texas bays is just it's just you know just incredible we still have uh you know we we still have struggles sometimes with our with spotted sea trout and as we said flounder and some other things and you know croaker uh which are not nearly as abundant as they used to but i would say that you know we have just some great fisheries here and how we've been able to keep them in the face of you know population growth and the number of people you know out there on the water uh i mean we're well over a million recreational fishermen and in uh coastal texas now and that's just uh that's that's a lot of people uh so that that's the tarpon and the and and red drum are probably the biggest bright spots in on the texas coast i'd say it's funny you bring up tarpon as as i said i grew up in the rockport portland corpus area um and there's just amazing photos in around Port Aransas in that area of FDR coming down uh, and fishing in the area. Love love tarpon fishing, the big tarpon rodeos. Yeah. It's uh, turned out to probably be a little bit short-sighted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but still amazing parts of history. And I'm also seeing a resurgence of tarpon on the coast. And man, on light tackle, they're, they're, 
there's no more fun than getting a hold of big tarpon. You know, and I think I think we might start seeing just from talking with scientists I've talked with that we're seeing more and more small tarpon in some of our Texas bays. Uh, so there may be, you know, we may be starting to develop a, a you know reproduction in some of our bays. Some of uh, so we may see some smaller fish instead of so there's a lot of big fish out there uh, in the in the near shore Gulf. But we don't really have so many in our bays as, as say places like Florida or even farther south into Mexico and places like that. So I think that's really encouraging that, that we're seeing. You know, we're seeing signs that we may be building a, you know an inshore tarpon fishery too. I mean, it's nothing. You know, it's 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 not something you could depend on now, but it's not it's not rare uh it's uh it's kind of like you know we were talking uh about how things have changed with with water temperature changes and and water levels it's like manatees uh you know there was no <laughs> there was no manatees up in here uh until 15 20 years ago and then you started seeing them uh, particularly down in the Mansfield area, there's one state in the in the harbor in Mansfield every year. There are now, you know, manatee reports in Lower Galveston Bay every year. Uh, we've had them all the way up the Houston Ship Channel into into Buffalo Bayou. We've had uh, you know we've had manatees uh, 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 almost in downtown Houston, uh, Trinity Bay. You you know we're 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 seeing we're seeing some some encouraging signs out there uh if those animals can uh can survive you know it's got to be a pretty it's got to be a pretty healthy system uh so now i'm encouraged in a lot of ways and discouraged in a lot of other ways but that's i'm sure every generation says the same thing you were telling us a great story before we started recording about uh, one of your uh, influential professors in college and his advice on entering the field of wildlife and fisheries. <laughs> Will you share that with folks? Yeah, it was kind of depressing. He was uh, he was teaching us real world stuff, and he said, you know, in your career, if you pursue this, you know, our goal, your goal, should be to not lose any more than 15 to 20 percent of what you started out with and that would be you sh- you should consider yourself successful then and that just seemed like a you know like you were your whole career you'd be fighting a rear guard action and and uh you know but instead of moving forward instead of enhancing you know wildlife and fisheries you were basically just trying to limit the damage and I think, you know, I, I think a lot of folks still, <laughs> unfortunately, we we still have to have that attitude. Uh, it's, uh, uh, but it's, you know, I don't think you're going to have any real good successes if you go into it with the idea that you're already, you're going to lose to begin with. You, you should probably have a little bit more positive attitude. <laughs> Maybe gain fifteen percent instead of lose fifteen percent over your career. So, uh, well, I think I, I think as we learned over the course of this conversation, it's about it's about the averages, right? Right. I think there are places where we're doing really well, and there's some places where we've made mis- missteps. Right. And 
but on balance, I will say that, you know, uh, if you had asked me when I was 25 what it would be like in the year 2019, it is a heck of a lot better than I than I thought it would be. I will say that uh, it's uh, we've made some great strides and made some uh, uh, some really good decisions and really good improvements. And it's the fact that uh, we still have we still have what we have. Where places like Galveston Bay, next to this huge metropolis, is still a viable mostly healthy productive estuary says something either about us or about the strength of estuaries their resilience or maybe both uh i just hope in you know 25 or 30 years somebody else can say the same thing uh but it's 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 been interesting it's been interesting covering this for the past 30 or 40 years and uh, uh, things have changed but I think mostly for the better to be honest with you well that's great I love ending on a positive note um, and we can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us today and share your more than 40 years of experience uh, covering these issues living these issues um, uh, hopefully we can have you back sometime uh, any any parting wisdom for our listeners <laughs> no, just uh, uh, you know, get out there, uh, engage, engage uh, that coastal world. Uh, you know, take every opportunity you can to be out there. Uh, it's it's we're really blessed with to have what we have. Uh, we have so many opportunities now. To, to access those and uh, you know pay attention to what's going on around you pay attention to uh, uh, you know, issues and you know make your make your feelings known to people who who can affect the policies that affect the things you care about and get out there and enjoy it dead gum you know it's life short <laughs> sage advice from shannon tompkins with the houston chronicle uh, we appreciate you joining us today for the catch curve post podcast with the american shoreline podcast network hope everyone has a good one <laughs>